All righty. So we are continuing. Uh, we'll probably finish next week, maybe the week after. Um, uh, our study through evangelism. And uh, just a reminder, the objectives that we're trying to accomplish is first to to kind of look at the authority of God's word in regard to evangelism, um, whether it comes down to the very facts of what the gospel is, um, the natural estate of man and where we're headed, um, the, the, the gospel itself is presented there. So we stand upon the authority of God's word. We also talked about the spiritual focus, that the, the purpose of evangelism isn't reform, but the purpose of evangelism is um, to, to spiritually deliver somebody. And while there may come reform as a result of that, it is the fruit of what is happening. And we read that in James, that that faith is accompanied by those reformative works as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And so we would expect change in the person's life. And not only that, we would expect change to pervade. And we see this in Scripture throughout the family, throughout the community, through all of those kinds of things. But it starts with that spiritual focus, with the, the, the rebirth, as it were, and even the promises that are uh, that are made to us, we we do have hope, and as believers, looking forward to those physical promises that are yet unfulfilled, even that of a uh, a, a new physical body that is uncorrupted by sin and all of those things. But those are looking forward to things. What are and it isn't. It is still a fruit of salvation of a new birth. Uh, we also talked about the motive uh, last week, the, the outside motive, and and. As we, we looked at that, uh, just in brief summary, right? we discussed that while there may be love for the lost, there may be obedience, there may be all kinds of things that would fall into the good category, they would be motivators to share the gospel, the end all, and all of those being secondary to glorifying God. That, that is, in fact, the purpose. That everything that, that is created, as we read in Scripture, was created for His glory. And we have this separation at the fall of man fulfilling the purpose for which he is made, specifically in the image of God, to bring him glory. And so as we share the gospel, we find that that, tends, that, that is the, the purpose for which we would share the gospel. It is the motivation for which we would share the gospel. That we are going to glorify God. That's why we would obey him. That's why we would share his love for the lost. That's why we would uh, endeavor to understand and know who he is. So uh, that's what we've covered so far. This morning, we want to look at some of the tools that God has given for evangelism. So we're sort of shifting gears from from the, the, the what is it to how do you do it. And while we're not going to stand here and, and as we would in a, in a Sunday school class, perhaps, or in, one of, in a Bible study, and, and take the time to practice those things, uh, knowing what the, the tools that we have are, and, and when I say tools, I'm not talking about methods and those kinds of things. We're going to look at Jesus's methods as we kind of wrap this, this up. But when you, if, for example, if you just search on the internet for uh, tool, evangelistic tools or something like that, you're going to find all kinds of things. And what they ultimately fall out to are methods and ways to do it and effectively many of them fall into the category of just manipulation. Whereas we're, we're and because we've set the foundation that the, the, the purpose of evangelism is to glorify God, right? We're not interested in reform. We're not interested in changing somebody's behavior. We're interested in somebody coming to actual faith. 
So we want to talk about the tools that God has given for evangelism. They're, they're ultimately, biblically, there aren't that many, but they're very effective. What is, and get ahead of myself. And last, like I said, we're, we're going to close sort of looking at Jesus's interactions as he shared the gospel with people throughout the New Testament. We could also look at Paul. We could also look at Peter. We could also look at other of the disciples who, who shared the gospel with people, but uh, they largely use the same methods. We're just going to simply focus on what Jesus did and look at that. So, um, something like 75%, and actually I think that number is low, uh, but I but I wasn't 100% sure that it was 80%, which is what I remember this statistic being, um, nor did I take the time to go look it up again, so full disclosure. But something like 75% of conversions, right, people who would profess to have come to faith in Jesus Christ don't stick. People walk away. They backslide. They're, they're, well, and, and, and the reality is, is that, that people have come to Christ because they were effectively sold a false gospel. Right? We, we talk about and and we we uh, and that's why we started as we introduced this by defining terms evangelism and witness because we we uh, in the church largely takes witness and lets that be I witness to the fact that I experience joy peace uh, security and assurance right we and we do those are true fruits of our conversion to Christianity, of our faith in Jesus Christ. But that is not the reason that we came to faith. The reason that we came to faith is because, because of the bad news that we face, that we are bound and destined for hell. So, And we're looking for that salvation. It isn't the reform that we are in pursuit of. If we're presenting the gospel uh, with the idea that Listen, Jesus is your friend, and in him you're going to have peace and joy and assurance and all those kinds of things. While that may be true, what they've come to faith in is the assurance. Is the Excuse me, not the assurance, the benefit. They haven't come to faith in the salvation that they've been, that is needed. So the, the preaching of the gospel is, has devolved into Jesus as your friend who wants nothing but good for you which in fact is true, right? So it's easy to pervert it. It's easy for it to get confused. And while all of those things, peace, joy, blessing, so on and so forth, are part of the promise that we receive in Christ, it is not understanding what we are saved to, but what we are saved from that changes the heart that instructs us of the need for Christ. So God has given you and I tools, and as we look in, in the, the, the Bible this morning, uh, we understand that these tools help us to preach the gospel clearly, to not confuse it, to not sell it as something that we try on to see if it's going to alleviate the heartache and the suffering and the pain that we perceive that we're having. Because in reality, what we understand as believers is that there is still heartache, there is still pain, there is still grief, there is still all of those things present in our life. Our perception has changed, our worldview has come to, to a different point where we understand it, hopefully through a biblical lens, because we were discipled. We were brought into submission to who our Master, Jesus Christ, our Lord is. 
and we take every thought captive to the mind of Christ, the authority of God's word, that we would stand upon that and that we would understand everything that we experience through that foundation. When I say that we want to preach the gospel clearly, what I mean is that we don't want to lead them to a house that's built upon the sands of escape and reform. That I'm going to escape all of this stuff. That I'm going to escape heartache and hardship. That my, my family will immediately be brought, put back together in a way that I could have never done. That my community will be changed. That, that I myself will overcome those things and those hardships that I experience in my life. Whatever it may be, the hangups that I have. The, it's not built upon the sand of escape and of reform. But it's firmly founded upon Jesus Christ and the salvation that's offered in him alone. The spiritual focus. So when we preach the gospel, we need to be speak, preaching it from the focus that God has given. So let's talk about a couple of these, uh, of these tools. First, prayer. And prayer is not to be neglected. And we start with prayer because Jesus... Uh, obviously thought it was important. Right here is one of the instances where we see that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for those who would come to faith. And I think that that is foundational understanding. If we look at the methods of Jesus, which uh, we'll be getting to here in regard to prayer, John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says, as he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's agonizing over what is about to happen, he prays for his disciples, those who have already come to faith. And he says in verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In other words, Jesus Christ took the time in the middle of his suffering to pray for those who would come to faith. And as we have him as our instructor, who should we be praying for? If we are going to evangelize, we need to be spending time in prayer for those who we seek to evangelize. That we would be spending time in prayer uh, focused specifically about evangelism, whether it's opportunity, whether it's courage, whether it's boldness, whether praying for the hearts of those that they would be prepared to receive the word that is being spoken to them. Not only that, but we find that Jesus himself specifically commanded his disciples in regard to evangelism to be praying. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is <clears throat> verse 37. Jesus sees these multitudes of people, and he, he makes this illustration. He uses the metaphor of a, of a field that is ready to be harvested, that here is the fruit ready to be plucked. And he says in verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And I want you to just see, this is how Jesus looked at the lost. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were scattered. They were looking for something, and they weren't finding it. And as a result, he says, they fainted. They were exhausted and wearied, which is the experience that we all have because Apart from Christ, we are trying to pursue something that is unattainable. And though we would pursue it and we would seek it and we would endeavor to attain it through whatever means possible, 
whether it's religion, whether it's ignorance, whether it's uh, whether I'm just going to be a good person, whatever it is, the end result is that we don't attain. We, we've striven for something that is unattainable. And we're exhausted. We're just ground down by the fact that we couldn't get there, that our conscience still condemns us. And rightfully so. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So here is Jesus, and he sees this, and he understands the natural estate of man, that he is bound and destined for hell, and he takes compassion. And then he says to his disciples in verse 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. In other words, there is a lot of work to be done. There is a lot of harvest to be gathered in, speaking metaphorically of these people who are ripe and ready for the gospel, but there are few to take the gospel to them, who will preach it to them, who will take the tools that we were discussing this morning and implement them, beginning with prayer. And so he commands them in verse 38, Pray ye for the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I want you to notice that this is God's harvest. He's the one that is doing this. We're simply messengers. We're simply a laborer that goes into the field, and we take the message of what God has done, uh, of the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. So we pray. It was important enough that Jesus would pray for those who would come to faith. It's important enough that we should pray for those that we would like to see come to faith. It's important enough that as Jesus is moved with compassion for those who are lost, that he would command his disciples, that being you and I today, to pray for laborers. So we have a command to pray. We have the the example of Jesus to pray. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Let's look at some examples of things that we ought to pray in regard to evangelism. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but I want to just open our eyes and and our hearts and minds to the the reality that there are things to be praying for specifically in, in regards to evangelism. You know, the Bible tells us uh, to pray without ceasing. We should be continually in a state of prayer. And, And there's a lot to be said about that, but the long and short is that when people discuss that, there's a, a forgetfulness of God's providence in in our our lives. And, and I don't want to get too deep into it because it's not something that I necessarily prepared for a discussion about prayer per se. But the long and short is that as we interact with God, I mean, he already knows, right? But But there is this intent whereas we pray we are moving with him as it were we are tuning ourselves in and we are uh giving praise and and adoration and glory to who he is it's a seeking of his providence uh, of direction toward his providence in romans chapter 10 verse 1 Here's Paul expressing his desire in this entire chapter for the salvation of the nation of Israel. But he begins, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And he goes on and he says, listen, I tell you that in verse 2, I bear record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
right? They have a zeal, they have an, an excitement about, they have a pursuit of God in whatever way or fashion that is. These are the religious people, but not according to knowledge. So Paul prays for their salvation, and this is an example for us. My heart should be as God's heart. Right, If Paul is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is he saying? My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. And as we go through, this is where we take these words that how shall they hear unless somebody preaches, and how shall somebody preach unless they be sent, so on and so forth. These missional verses that we use to sort of understand the, the, the process of going and sharing the gospel. But it is introduced with the idea of prayer, with the desire of being prayerful, expressing that desire, praying on their behalf, interceding for them. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and this is familiar to us because we, we look at it, but in, in this context, uh, it, it comes to bear as well. Second Peter three nine. God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, where not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So just as Paul is praying for all of Israel, knowing that, and Paul would be the one who would write, not all Israel is God's Israel. Right? He understands that not everybody's going to come to faith. He doesn't have an issue with that. It doesn't stop him though from praying for them, and and. I want you to notice here that the Lord is not slack concerning this promise. There is a prayer for you and I in regard to evangelism for patience and faith, continual enduring faith. That if God is not slack, if he's not ignorant or neglectful of the promise that he's made, if his desire is in fact that people would come to faith in him, and he is in fact willing, as the word just here says, long-suffering, so that all would come to repentance. As we continue to intercede for people that we would love to come to, to salvation, we would love to see born again, there may be an endurance in that prayer, a patient, hopeful waiting for the answer and the intervention of God in their life. He may already be at work in ways that we don't fully see or recognize. We have to pray for ourselves for continued faith patience, endurance, that we would not grow weary in praying for those that we would have come to faith, that we would continue interceding on their behalf. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So we pray as Paul prayed for those who would come to faith. We, we pray that God would intercede, that he would move on their behalf. We pray for ourselves, for patience and for endurance, that we would continue in uh, interjecting in their life with a clear presentation of the gospel that we would pray that we would not uh, fall prey to the doubt associated with having to wait, with patience, but that we would persevere in that prayer, that we would continue on in the, the good work of preaching the gospel. And here we would also pray 
that there would be a lifting, a removal of the blindness that has been granted to them, that has been uh, covering them by Satan himself. We would understand that God, God's enemy, Satan, wouldn't want anyone to come to faith. That if this is God's purpose and he is willing to suffer long for it, if he's willing to do everything to provide it, that Satan is going to work against it. And I think that in many ways, Satan has worked against it by simply perverting it, by making the presentation of the gospel such that what we are coming to faith in is something that doesn't exist or something that isn't even promised. So that when we come to that and when people do come to faith, quote-unquote come to faith, and they suffer some heartache that we're unexpecting, they fall away. And what happens is that on the other side, when somebody now shares the gospel with them yet again, what do they come? Well, I tried Jesus and that didn't work. And there's no interest. And there's yet this other barrier to overcome because somebody has perverted the gospel. We want to be those who clearly state the gospel, who preach it from a foundation of the authority of God's word, from the spiritual focus of the, the gospel. The intent is to save them, to, to have them born again. And then let that be the fruit of change and not the other way around. We're not saving them to a gospel of works or legalism. We're saving them to Christ himself. We are not saving anybody. God is doing the work. Okay, but we pray for the opening of their minds, that God would remove any barrier, that he would overcome those things, that he would sow the seed of understanding and alertness, enlightenment that had been previously stifled. Now, this is just three examples. You can go, if you went online, and I know all these, because I, I, I did this this week, just to see. Right? If you're going to talk about the gospel in America and, and what's being preached as the gospel, I want to know what it is, and I want to know, are, are we doing a good job? Because I, I'm convinced that the reason the statistics of those who would fall away from the faith is so high is because they didn't come to faith at all. That the faith that they came to, the gospel that was preached to them, was false. So let's not replicate but if you go online and you Google praying for evangelism, you'll have page after page after page come up. Here are just three examples. Things that we can clearly pray against, that we can clearly pray for, that we can engage in in regard to evangelism specifically, the preaching of the gospel. There's no end to the things that we could pray for, and, and there is no end to the things that we might pray for in regard to evangelism. Now, one of the other tools that we have given to us by God himself is our witness. And we'll remember if we define witness, the evangelism literally means preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ. And our witness is the testimony of what we have received in Christ. And I bring that up because it is, in fact, a tool that is something that that has been given to us. However, we need to wield it in a way that is consistent with the purposes and the focus of evangelism. As I said, the, the church in large part, at least in Western societies, has taken witness in evangelism and switched them. So that the entire preaching of the gospel is all about what we would witness, what they would receive, 
and it puts it on its head. Now, our personal testimony of the saving power of Jesus Christ is one of the weapons in our arsenal, and it is a firsthand witness of the transformative power of the gospel. We profess the very truth of the gospel. Primarily, that the salvation from sin and death, having received the spirit of life in Christ, Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. Right? That, that is our primarily what we're focusing on. Why? Because the primary focus of the gospel is this deliverance from death. The spiritual focus, the being born again, being delivered from sin and death into the spirit of life in Christ. So that is the primary thing that we witness of. Now, there are those who, and I've shared the story before of Jessica's grandfather, who uh, was a, a just a rough man. Yet when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, his witness was very strong because there was something transformed within him. Coming from being an alcoholic uh, fighter, I mean, just, he was a rough man. <laughs> to being the guy who was almost guaranteed to preach the gospel to you. And it was it rung true with people because they experienced the witness that he had. Now, turn with me to John chapter 4. Because we see this same thing not only in the world today, but we see it in Scripture. John chapter 4, Jesus' purpose is to go through Samaria. right? Most of the time, the Jews would travel around. Remember, the Samarians are half Jew, half Assyrian. Uh, they don't get along. They have their own priesthood. They have their own place of worship. They have all of those things. Um, Today, they're more Jew than Jews, uh, and they exist. They still have them out, and they go on. They still offer sacrifices. They still do the same things. But normally, they would travel around Jesus' purpose to go through Samaria, and he went through Samaria on purpose. If you purpose to go through Samaria, you went on purpose. Okay, here's why. What we read in John chapter 4 for you and I is an example. And we're going to talk about it more as we get into Jesus' method because it didn't matter about the social taboos of the day. That was, that was part of his method, it did, that it didn't matter. He would preach the gospel to anyone. Jew, Gentile, leper, adulterer, Samaritan, it didn't matter. John chapter 4, let's read verses 28 and 29. And just by context, here is Jesus. He's encountered this woman at the well. She gives him water. He gives her the speech about living water. And she says, yeah, give me that water. Sounds great. And then he, he goes into and he, he addresses with her her sin. And I, and, and I want to point that out, that Jesus is talking about the number of husbands that she's had. I mean, she's effectively in an adulterous uh, marriage as it is. And that's key because Jesus is addressing her sin. We're going to see that's an important, uh, an important principle uh, this morning as well. Um, but as Jesus concludes this, this woman begins to understand, and you see this progression of understanding about who Jesus is. She perceives that he's a prophet. She perceives all these things about him. But then when she leaves Jesus and she goes back into town to get the people, verses 28 and 29, notice what she says. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever I did. In other words, come see a man that encountered me and confronted me about all the sin that I've ever done. All things that I ever did. 
And what is her witness? Is this not, is not this the Christ? This must be the Messiah. The one that was promised, the one who is going to be the Redeemer of Israel, the one who is going to deliver us from sin and death. What is her witness? That there is a reformation, a cure for the sin problem. And it is Christ. It is Jesus. This is Him. In, in John chapter uh, 1, if you'll turn a few pages back in John chapter 1, we find some of the early disciples of Jesus, some of those that he called early on, one of them being a man named Philip. And as they're traveling, Philip, uh, it says in verse 44 of John chapter 1, was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here he is, and he comes and he finds his friend Nathaniel, and he tells him, this is who was prophesied in the Old Testament, by Moses, by the Law and the Prophets, everything leading up to. His witness of what he had found, of who Jesus was. And I want you to notice, because he talks about, uh, the context is important, him who was told who the prophets did right in Moses and in the Law. Right There's this confirmation and this looking at what the Messiah was supposed to do. We can't divorce or separate the, the witness of who Jesus is from the context of what he was supposed to do, of the promise of deliverance, right? We find that all the way back, that, that here we are, corrupted in a fallen state now in Genesis 3, suffering the, the penalty of sin, which is, in fact, death, and we find that Jesus uh, is foretold to be this deliverer who's going to overcome sin and death. And then throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Law and the Prophets, throughout Moses and the Prophets, we find this idea confirmed. And we talked about that as we looked at the, the uh, not only the full context of the Gospel, and we see those things in the Old Testament foretold and promised. But here he is. We understand that the nation of Israel, in, in large regard, had missed the point that what they saw in Jesus Christ and what they hoped for and expected was something different than what was actually promised. Is there going to be a restoration of Israel and those things? Yes, there is. Those are secondary in many regards to the promise of deliverance from sin and death. So here is Philip, and in his witness, what is he doing? He's putting that in its proper context. When we look at the gospel, when we look at and stand up on the authority of God's word, what does it say, not what do I want it to say? We present the gospel from that perspective. Our witness, what we're testifying we have received and who Jesus is, needs to be consistent with what he has revealed of himself. As we look at Paul, in Acts chapter 26, here is Paul. He's made his appeal to Caesar. Uh, he stands before Festus. And then now in, in our passage here, he stands before King Agrippa. And this isn't the first place, but this is one of the last places that we find Paul recounting his conversion experience. And I want you to notice that here is Paul in Acts chapter 26. Let's begin in verse 12. He says, whereupon, here he's talking about... He, 
he's laying the foundation in the first pre in the previous verses, verses three through seven. He's talking about his zeal to persecute the church. How he even got letters of authority and he was going to find those disciples in Damascus to put them to death or cause them to blaspheme and, and renounce the name of Christ. And he lays this foundation. I was an enemy of Christ. I was an enemy of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we pick up here where he begins to talk about his conversion experience in verse 12. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. So here's Paul, and he's his witness is such, right? The transformation of his life is from chief persecutor of the church to chief presenter of the gospel to the Gentiles. Being completely and drastically opposed to persecutory of Christianity to being its chief evangelist. This is his conversion, and this is what he's talking about. Now, I want you to notice that as we, if you back up a few, a few verses to, to verse 2, Paul understands something about Agrippa, and he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things where I am accused of the Jews. Especially because, in verse 3, I know thee to be expert in all customs, and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So Paul is using the understanding of Agrippa and his familiarity with Jewish custom and religion and ceremony and all of those things. Agrippa is familiar with not only those things, but what has been happening here. As we've as we read and, and we understand uh, from this text, but he's familiar with what the Messiah was promised to be, what they're looking for. And so here is Paul sharing his witness in the, con in the clear context of understanding. He continues on, <clears throat> and he, he tells Agrippa what Jesus told him, and in verse 19, he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. In other words, uh, just as Jesus had commissioned me to be this apostle, th this disciple that would take the, the gospel message to the Gentiles, I have done it. But I showed first unto them Damascus and Jerusalem throughout all the coasts of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet or acceptable, consistent for repentance. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Right, Paul is talking about the persecution that he suffered as a result of being this disciple of Christ. Verse 22, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none the other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first, and that he should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. 
And when we talk about this light, there's an understanding in in Jewish thought of this enlightenment, this this heavenly understanding, so to speak, where where we are supernaturally given insight. And so here is Paul in the context of Agrippa's understanding of Jewish customs and all of those things pertinent to his testimony that he is now giving, talking about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Where it happened, who it was, the result of it. And and here he is talking about using himself as an illustration, and that's how witnesses use, as an illustration of the authenticity of what has happened. Yes, we are going to experience blessing. Yes, we are going to experience all kinds of reformation within us. We're going to have fruits that, that are born within us through our sanctification in Christ. We are going to grow. We're going to experience peace beyond understanding. We're going to have joy that doesn't make any sense to anybody. All of those things are true, but they are all fruits and resulting from the experience that we have here. And so while they may be pertinent in our witness, They are not the gospel themselves. So here is Paul using his illustration of the transformation that was had in him. And that even though he was persecuted, even though he suffered at the hands of, of the Jews, he was willing to do so, that he experienced peace, joy, blessing, all of those things, counted at all loss for the excellency of knowing Christ. That's how our witness works. That's how it is a tool for evangelism. That it is just as it sounds a witness of the actual fruit of the actual event in our heart and mind. So we have prayer as a tool for evangelism. We pray for those who intercede on their behalf. We have our witness that we would testify to who Jesus is first and foremost that we would testify of the transformative power of, of ourselves having been taken from death to life, that our life should be a living example. It's why living in a way that is consistent, the profession of our faith would be consistent with, or that our life would be consistent with the profession of our faith. There we go. That's why that's important. If it's not, your witness is damaged. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect, but we have to be flawless. Paul wasn't, and he admitted it readily and, and, and openly for all time and eternity, because here it is in the Word of God. But if our purpose in, glory, in evangelizing is the glory of God, our life in Christ is to the glory of God. That as his ambassadors, we would represent him well. Therefore, we want to see our the unification of our witness, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves, how we would testify about what God has done in us, be consistent with what would represent him, what would represent the transformation that actually happened. Now, we also have two more tools this morning we have the word and i'm going to i'm going to separate the word and the law i'm going to use them as two separate things because i think we see them they're almost synonymous and you could probably talk about them synonymously but i'm going to separate them uh, uh, because i think it warrants such 
Okay, the the word of God is the authority that we stand upon as we preach the gospel. It is where we find what it is. It is where we find who Jesus is. It is where we find the natural estate of man, all described, how it resulted, how man came to fall and be in desperate need of being saved, so on and so forth. And upon the revealed truth of what the Lord has said, we understand the gospel and the nature of mankind, including his desperate need of salvation. It is here that God had laid out his desire to save mankind, his plan to save mankind, and the method that he went through for our redemption. He's clearly illustrated it in Israel and in the foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament. We've studied those things throughout, and as we look at, I'm not saying that everything should be spiritually interpreted necessarily in the Old Testament. That's probably, that's a very bad hermeneutic, but we understand that there is a foreshadowing and looking forward to that Jesus, excuse me, that, that Israel are is God's example people. And he uses that, and we find in the New Testament that there is this discussion and this clarification of what was being represented by the nation of Israel. Now, you and I don't replace Israel. God has made specific and special promises to them. Ultimately, we know that there's a vast, uh, excuse me, a group of them anyway, that are going to be saved, and that we're going to enjoy fellowship with them in heaven for all of eternity. But the long and short is, just as Paul would say, not all Israel is God's Israel. Those who come by faith, just like Abraham came by faith, just like you and I would come by faith. And God has taken the time in his word to illustrate all of that, to give us this meat and potatoes look, very basic, very simple, very understanding, but very substantive idea of what is being promised, of what is being offered, and how it has been paid for. In James chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, James chapter 1. Now normally we look at this passage in James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, and we do so in uh, the context of the law, but, but I want to put it in the context of the entirety of God's word first. James chapter 1, verse 21, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluidity of naughtiness, or excess of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Now the engrafting, that's the implanted. In other words, it's going to come into us, and as Paul would say, it's going to have its way. It's going to do things in you and me. It's going to expose, it's going to enlighten, it's going to give us insight into where we stand, who we are, who God is, and where we stand in respect to him. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now, if the entirety of God's word ultimately is to reveal to us our need for Christ and who Christ is and the what, what he has done on the cross, then to be a doer of the word in that sense is that we would accept Christ, that we would take the word of God, let it come into us, expose who we are, and this is the illustration given to us, so that we might come to Christ. That it might come in, that it's implanting within us, it's engrafting in us, would be able to save our souls. 
If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. That we would be willingly ignorant or just so in, enthralled with the world around us or that we'd be so encumbered with the world around us that we would forget immediately those things that we would see. That everything around us, and I think that this is a tactic of the enemy, that everything around us would bear upon us so heavily that we can't consider the important things about who we are and where we stand with God. And what does the Word of God do? It cuts through all of that, and it makes us contend with those very facts. As we look at the Word of God, as we look at it as the tool for evangelism, we find that it becomes one of those things that, that as we understand it, the more we understand it, the more useful it becomes in our evangelism. Because in our interactions and in our conversations with those that we would preach the gospel to, there are inevitably going to be questions. There's going to be these things and those things, and yet, and now we have this basis of authority upon which we can stand, and we can use it as the mirror that it is and say, listen, here it is. This is where you've gone off. And now they have to do something with it, because that's the intent and the purpose of the word, that they would have to now deal with the revelation of who they are and where they stand. He says in verse 25, but whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but, deceive, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. And he goes and, and he describes what, right here is the word of God. And it cuts through. Uh, we would read in Hebrews chapter four. I'm, I'm just going to turn there and read it to you. Uh, I didn't have it in my notes, but I should have because it's it's exactly what the Word of God does for us. Hebrews chapter 4. This is the light that we look into. This is the uh, enlightenment that we are given. Um, I say Hebrews chapter 4, but... Yes, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Right, so here we might deceive those around us. We might even seek to deceive ourselves. But here we know that, that when we come to look at the word of God and it comes to bear upon us, that it cuts through all of the garbage even to the thoughts and intents of the motives, the reasons we would do things. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto him to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Right? This is the action of the word of God, is it's the mirror that we look into that cuts through everything. And when we use it as a tool to evangelize, all we're doing is simply taking the truth of God's word and unashamedly standing upon it and letting it come to bear in the life of somebody who, who we may be preaching to. And we stand unashamedly upon the truth. And that's where the rub is, because today, to stand unashamedly upon the truth is harder and harder. We're going we're gonna to suffer more as a result of it than we used to. Maybe that's not a true statement. Maybe that's a perceived truth. It seems as if it's harder and harder to stand on the truth of God's word. But here is Paul, and 
John and Peter and those who would stand upon the truths of God's word, and they were persecuted heavily to the point of being imprisoned, to the point of being beaten, to the point of being pursued to be put to death. So maybe today, while it may seem harder, maybe we're just softer. We find that in Jesus' interaction with people that he preaches the gospel to, that he uses the word of God. And he uses it in its entirety. And that's why I, I separated the law and the word of God. Okay, let's look in Luke chapter 4 first. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Uh, I actually had started putting this together, and I had the law and the word together, and then I encountered these passages, and like Jesus was using them as two separate things. So we need to understand it as two separate tools. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read it. And, when, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eye of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Interesting, right? We stand today to preach and we sit down, right? Jesus sat down to preach. Why? Because we're honoring the Word of God. He stood up to read the Word of God and then he sat down to preach. So I probably should get a stool up here and we just sit down, right? We're, because we're it's this reverence for the Word. That's a whole sidebar. I don't know that it's really that significant necessarily, but notice the reverence. And so what does he do? He sits down. And everybody is paying attention. Everybody is looking at Jesus. Now, he's in his hometown. He's in Nazareth. And as he's in Nazareth, everybody wants to know. Can you imagine growing up in Nazareth with Jesus? We don't, I mean, we had this from the time he was eight, and they, they lost him in Jerusalem to, to the point where he enters public ministry. We have this huge gap, but we don't know exactly what happened. But we know he was growing up. He became a man. We know that he was probably working with Joseph as a carpenter. We know things that are probably true. But we also know that in the middle of all of that, that those who are there have an understanding about Jesus. And we just see this inferred in Scripture, that they look at him and they see that there's authority. They see that there is something different. They see that he is set apart somehow. Not only that, but everybody knows his story, how he came to be. Everybody knows Mary and Joseph and, and the, the scandal. Yet here he is, and he's come to a point where he's speaking in the synagogue. He's come to a position where people respect the authority with which he speaks, though he may not always be well-received. It's an interesting thought to me to, to what would it be like to have grown up there, to what would we have witnessed, what would have gone on. But here he is in a position where he stands in some authority in his hometown. He says in verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Right? That here I am, I'm going to be the one that is foretold. I'm going to be the, the, the one that the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I'm preaching the gospel. 
That, that's what he's saying. That everything that we just read in Isaiah is true of me, that I am the fulfillment of it. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Right? They, there's this discontinuity in who Jesus is known to be in the community and the way that he is conducting himself now. And he said to them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And I tell you a truth, many widows were in Israel. And he goes on and uses these historical examples of their hard-heartedness. Right? There are many widows in Israel, but where did Elias have to go? Well, he didn't go into Israel to find a widow. And he stayed with that widow, and you can go read the story in the Old Testament. He says, hey, there were lepers in, in Israel, but none of them went and washed in the Jordan River. But Naaman... The Syrian did. Right? Jesus is clearly, and they understood it, uh, verse 28, and they all day in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they get up and they take him out of the city and they're going to, to the top of this hill, and they're going to throw him off the hill. Why? Because Jesus is commenting on their hard-heartedness. He says, listen, I've grown up here. This is where I'm from. The very word of God, this is the truth about me. This is what it says, and it is fulfilled right now, this moment, in your ears. You have seen it, you have heard it, clearly expounded to you, and here, but you are like these people. You are the nation of Israel that is hard-hearted and rejected. Jesus uses the word of God to address them, to confront them, to show them where their heart really is. And their understanding of what he is doing because they're offended by it. Right? John, Jesus is in his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, talks about why people respond this way to the gospel. Because here is the light of God's word shining into their life. And it's uncomfortable. They don't like it. Their deeds are exposed as deeds of darkness rather than deeds of righteousness. Turns me to Luke chapter 24, another instance where Jesus used the, the entirety of God's word. Luke 24, at the end of this, this gospel here, Jesus is now risen. And we have these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're, they're leaving Jerusalem, going back to their town. And Jesus comes alongside them and walks with them. And he, he's disguised himself in the sense that he just makes it so they can't recognize him. Right? He didn't have to wear a disguise because he's Jesus. It's not like you put on a you know the fake nose at the mustache, the glasses, remember those? No, he just supernaturally made it so they couldn't recognize him. Here he is, the risen Lord, recently crucified, now back in the flesh, walking alongside these men, and he hears what they're talking about. Beginning verse 13. Uh, let's, verse 17. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, said unto him, 
Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things which are come to pass here in these days? I mean, how could you not know? Have you just gotten here? Because this is what everyone is talking about. But this is what everyone is talking about in Jerusalem. And he said unto him, what things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that he had been he which would have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which we were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that these had seen vision of angels, which said, unto, said that he was alive. So, so they're recounting not only who Jesus was, and, and, but they're recounting his crucifixion, his resurrection, and, and the witness of these ladies to say, hey, he's not there. And the angels told us that he's risen. And Jesus uses the word of God to interact with them. He says in verse 25, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? Jesus took the opportunity and he used the entirety of the word of God to develop an understanding in these disciples, because they were clearly with the disciples who the women reported back to. They identify themselves as part of that group. Yet they had missed the point. And so what does Jesus use to interact with them? What does he use to instruct them? But he uses the entirety of the word of God. Moses and the prophets, everything from Genesis, the entire Old Testament to confirm to them who he was and the very fact that the Christ, him, Jesus, was going to go through all of the things that they just said. Now, and, and we we've studied through that. We we've looked at it in, in great detail, but it but it starts very foundationally with the understanding that, that this is what was going to happen. And how does Jesus do this with them? Well, he uses the entirety of the word of God. We stand upon the authority that God's word is true that, and that it is profitable for everything that is necessary. That it is, in fact, a very spoken, literally inspired word of God here written and preserved for our benefit and instruction. Not only that, but it is a tool here for us to use the word of God to interact with people about who Jesus is, about what he has done, about where their sin problem originated, why they are in fact sinners, so on and so forth. All of the bad news and all of the good news associated with the gospel is here, and this is in fact what Jesus is doing with these men. From Genesis to Malachi. It's Malachi the last Genesis to that book right before Matthew. <laughs> it starts with an M. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17. <clears throat> Romans 10, 17. We were here earlier as Paul is praying for the nation of Israel. And we, we look and we see that there are those who are called to preach. But he says then, 
He says this in verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is what we witness with. This is how we preach the gospel. This is how we, this is the instrument that we use to bring people to the to an understanding of what God has done and his desire, his plan of redemption. And not only directly connected to and, and used with the word of God, we find the law itself. And when I talk about the law, I want to just clarify, we have, I mean, we have three laws, if I can just phrase it that way, right? We have the, the ceremonial laws, all the laws that God gave the nation of Israel, don't eat this and offer these sacrifices, those kinds of things. Those are ceremonial laws. Those are illustrative of something that Jesus finished on the cross, and they're no longer for you and I in effect. It is not incumbent upon you and I that we would go and offer sacrifices. There aren't things that we would withhold ourselves from necessarily as a result of obedience to the law. Those things were illustrative of what God was promised, was going to do in Christ. So the ceremonial law is not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about civil law. There are certain things and laws that God gave in the Old Testament that would be effective today. Those things that, that would uh, govern how we would govern. We're not talking about those laws either. We're talking about the moral law. And if I can just phrase it ever so simply, the moral law is that which is universally right and wrong. And it's right and wrong because God has said that it is right or God has said that it is wrong. It is just that way. doesn't matter how I feel about it or how anyone else feels about it. That is the way that it is. So when we're talking about the moral law and its very specific purpose and focus, it serves to provide context for the gospel. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Now, and Paul is here talking about the law. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he says, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Right? What does Paul say? He says that our knowledge and understanding of what sin is comes from the law. that which God has declared to be right and wrong, universally. We find it, if we can just oversimplify again, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Right? We have some that are in a relationship to our relationship with God and some in our relationship toward man. Those things which are wrong, those things which are, are prohibited for us. Now, it isn't the entirety of the law, but it is a summary of, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 7, <clears throat> says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Right, that here it is, that's, that's the entirety of the word of God, the testimony of the Lord, making wise the simple. But the law of the Lord, that which is he is declared to be right and wrong, that is what is converting, that is, that is what is uh, it's perfect, converting the soul. It's leaving us without any excuse. 
It exposes where we stand in John, and it provides the context for the gospel. Think of it like this. If you, uh, say you're at a swimming pool, and uh, you decide that I'm going to go off the high dive, and while you're up on the high diving board and you're looking down, as you inevitably do, questioning all of your life choices at that moment because I'm about to jump off this perfectly good diving board, and you see people out there, and they're swimming and splashing and having fun, and you identify this person over here must be drowning. And so you dive off, and you swim over to the person, you grab them, you know, because you're supposed to grab them from behind so they don't take you down with them, right? And you grab this person, you start dragging them. How well-received is it going to be? I mean, my perception, i they didn't know they were drowning. They had no clue that they were drowning, but I could clearly see that they were drowning, so I'm driving. It's not going to be very well-received, is it? Somebody drags you to the side of the pool just out of the blue. They come off the diving board, and they grab you around the neck, start dragging you to the edge of the pool. How are you going to react? The law of God serves to give that context. It's that which would come and it would say, listen, you're clearly struggling. You're drinking water. You're under more than you're above the water. You're drowning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull you to the edge. If I sold everything that I had and I purchase the one and only cure for any for the illness that you didn't know you had. And then I gave it to you and you you looked at me like I was crazy because I sold everything that I had and I'm now homeless and destitute, but I've given you this cure. Well, the cure makes no sense because you don't know what disease you have. This is what the law does. It provides a context of understanding. It strips away all of our excuse. It tells us where we really stand. It is that which we look into and we clearly see our depravity, our fallen state, and it leaves us without any excuse. In John chapter, excuse me, first John chapter uh, chapter one, chapter three, first John three, verse four. Whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law. For sin is a transgression of the law. And so you, you with the law of God, provide the context of where we stand. It, it is telling them why they need to be pulled from the pool. It is telling them why we have this need to, to provide the cure that you didn't know you had, for the disease you didn't know you had. But you can, you can, and you can go online, you can go to... Uh, living waters, and you can watch Ray Comfort do this, go through the Ten Commandments. It, it, and I realize that it's, it almost seems hokey and see, it seems gimmicky, but what do we find? That the law of God is actually what we encounter and what reveals to us the disease that we have, if we use that term, the disease of sin. Of our inability to do anything that is acceptable or anything that would make us acceptable before God. Because the word of God says that there is none righteous, including you and me, and that person that we're going to talk to on the street, that is righteous. 
Not one. All of a sudden, we put in context what the disease, what the problem is, and that's what the law of God does. It provides that context for the gospel. It is the clear statement of the bad news so that now when we tell them the good news, we give them the cure, it all makes sense. Why is this guy dragging me to the side of the pool? Well, because I was, in fact, drowned. And I understand that now. I get to the edge, and I'm coughing up water, and I can hardly stand for five minutes because I was nearly dead. But when I realized that somebody who has done everything necessary for me to have the cure, the one cure that I really needed, and they gave up everything on, on their end so that I might have it for nothing, makes sense when I realize and I'm convinced that I do, in fact, have whatever disease they say that I have. It is our instructor, our tutor, our schoolmaster. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Galatians 3, 24. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. To strip us of all excuse. That we would stand there in the full understanding and knowledge of, of where we are with God, what our natural estate is, where our predetermined destiny apart from Christ would be. That's what the law does. Now, so, so we have these tools, these instruments that God has given us. Perhaps there are others. These are ones that I can clearly point to biblically. We have prayer. We have our witness. And we see that illustrated throughout Scripture. We, we find that in many respects, the witness of Peter, John, uh, Matthew, the, the, the apostles, the disciples there, becomes part of their presentation of the gospel. The Samaritan woman. Even Jesus witness about witness about who he is. We find the word of God, and as I said, I separated that from the, from the law of God, because here is Jesus using it to give this bigger context, to give this full understanding of who he is as revealed in Scripture. And so as we become familiar with it, it becomes a tool where we can explain, well, this is who Jesus is. This is how it's illustrated. This is why these things, when somebody says, well, gee, you know, you're, uh, uh, never mind. And then we have the law. That which would strip us of all of our excuses would give us that context for the good news. It brings us to a point where we stand and we have to do something with what we've just been encountered. I can either choose to ignore it. I can be like that man who would behold his face naturally and then walk away and ignore and forget that I was ever a sinner. Or I can choose to deal with it and accept it by faith, Jesus Christ. Now I want to give, in closing this morning, some words of caution. Because we wield these tools of the gospel as we preach them and we keep in mind that they are used for the glory of God. Their design is not to make you and I, the preacher, appear wise, but to lead the sinner to repentance. And all I mean by that is it isn't for you and I to be those Bible thumpers and be those who would come down and we would have, that we, y'all know what I'm talking about. Now, and I'm not even saying, hey, you can do it on the street corner. I don't have a problem with any of that. You can just knock on somebody's door and initiate a conversation. Done it. A lot of it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if we are preaching, and, and if the evangelism, the chief goal is to glorify God, then it's not about me. It's not about winning the argument about who's right and who's wrong and whoever's religion. It's about glorifying God. It's about honoring Him and the presentation. And so we need to, as we preach the gospel, as we wield these instruments, these tools that God has given us, 
We need to do so with grace. We need to do so with our words. They need to be seasoned with grace. They should be very shared carefully. The point is not to win the argument, but the sinner. We can lose the, we can lose the conversation from almost the very first word in the way that we say it, the presentation that we give of it, so on and so forth. Some of us are more prone to it than others. We also share in compassion, just as Jesus was moved in compassion, he was moved in empathy for the situation that those people were in. We come knowing the lost state that they, they were in because that's where we were before we came to Christ. Some may be fully aware of their sinfulness. Right? You, you consider the woman uh, that was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. Right? Here are all these religious men, and they bring her before. He's like, hey, listen, you got to condemn this woman. You need to judge her. And what does Jesus do? And he starts and he gets down, and he writes in the dust of the ground. We don't know exactly what he wrote. There's all kinds of theories, and you can pick your favorite one. I'm more or less convinced that it doesn't matter exactly what he wrote in the dirt. If it was important, we would have been told what it was. But eventually, what do we find? All of these people who would accuse her left. And Jesus says, hey, who, he is without the first, without sin, cast the first stone. I have a personal theory that Jesus didn't write the sins of the guys who were accusing her. I don't think that that was the case. I think Jesus simply started writing the law. But that law, as they as he wrote it, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship any other gods. No idols, right? Don't blaspheme. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. So on and so forth. I think as Jesus begins, I think he writes those things down. And that's which, and I'm basing that on what we talked about this morning. It removes the excuse. That's just my theory. But here he is. He has compassion on this woman. What does he tell her to do? He tells her, listen, I don't accuse you. He can't accuse her. He didn't catch her in the act. It has to be two witnesses. Go and sin no more. He has compassion. We see this in Christ, and we need to use that as an example for ourselves. The need, they need, those who we're going to preach the gospel to, they need the good news because they are already convinced of the bad. The woman caught in an adultery, she knew exactly what she'd done. She knew exactly where she stood. She was guilty. She was confronted right away with her sin. We also find this in, in Acts, by the way, at Pentecost. right? Why are they in Jerusalem? Well, they're there celebrating the giving of the law. right? What do they do while they're there in Jerusalem? Well, they read the law. They've just been confronted with the law of God for the entirety of the time that they're there. And then what does Peter do? He tells them about the remedy for their failure in keeping the law. This is the that's the power of the tools, right? The, the, here it is, but we need to wield it. We can come and we can beat somebody down so far by showing them their need for Christ. Some people may be fully aware of it. Some people may not be aware of it. We might need to interact with them a little bit about it. And I would say, practice some methods. We're going to see Jesus use some other methods, and, we're, and we'll be able to put them, but you practice them as we, as we learn them. On the other side of that coin, there are those who need to encounter their depravity for the very first time, perhaps. And in their mind, they're pretty good people. They've got everything 
going well. And, and so therefore I must be in favor with God or whatever the case may be. Don't be ashamed to boldly preach the truth of the law. It is a compassionate thing to share somebody's sin with them. If that needs to happen. Not only that, we share it in humility, right? That we would take these tools and we would wield them in humility. Remember whose glory we preach for. It's not our own. It's not to be wise in, in somebody else's eyes, but it is to make God known. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your word, to look at the things that you have given us. And I pray that, Lord, we would, uh, certainly there are more, certainly there are things that I've overlooked, but God, that we would take at least these few very simple things, tools, instruments that you've given us, Lord, that we would begin to implement them in our personal evangelism. We would wield them in a way that is consistent for you. Lord, we would be given enough grace that we might use them in their biblically intended way. And I pray, Lord, that as we have opportunity to put them into practice, Lord, we pray even now for those who we would preach the gospel to. I pray even now, Lord, for each one of us, grace that our witness would be consistent with the profession of our faith. I pray even now, Lord, that you would grant each one of us a boldness and a security and an authority of your word, and that we would have a familiarity with it, Lord, such that we could use as an instrument to illustrate the very basic principles of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And God, may we wield the law carefully, yet unashamedly. Prepare the soil of the hearts, Lord, that we might have opportunity to preach to this week. That, Lord, we might, uh, for your glory and honor, make you known. We ask this now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.